0: I'm Marty Cohen. Welcome to The Connection. Surgeon General Dr. Vivek Murthy is sounding the alarm about a crisis of loneliness in America. He even admitted to his own personal crisis, realizing recently that he was feeling alone and disconnected after neglecting to nurture his relationships because of his focus on his job. Here he is on his own podcast in May talking about his lifelong struggles with loneliness.
1: Loneliness is something that I have struggled with over the course of my life, starting from when I was a child. Loneliness was a key part of my elementary school experience. And I remember being scared to come to school uh, many days because I just didn't want to feel like I was by myself and I was alone. And, you know, at times as an adult, though, also, I have had bouts of loneliness as well.
0: Murthy's office has issued an advisory after finding that half of American adults have experienced loneliness, which puts them at risk for depression and anxiety. And surprisingly, it also puts them at risk for heart disease, stroke, and premature death. The advisory calls for policies that reduce isolation and create a culture of social engagement. Well, today on The Connection, what's driving this crisis that predates COVID and how can we better connect with one another? Let me introduce our two guests. Julianne holt Lundstad is lead scientific advisor for the Surgeon General's Advisory, which is titled Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. She's scientific chair of the U.S. Foundation for Social Connection and professor of psychology at Brigham Young University. Julianne, nice to have you with us on The Connection. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Nice to have you with uh, with us, I should say, and also with us is Eric Kleinenberg. He's a professor of sociology at New York University, author of several books, including Palaces for the People and Going Solo. And Eric Kleinenberg, nice to have you with us on The Connection as well. I don't think we have, Eric. Julianne, I will start with you. Are you surprised by these findings, the fact that as this uh, advisory is titled, we're talking about an epidemic of loneliness and isolation?
2: Well, um, you know, of course, um, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm not surprised given my not only my involvement in, in the advisory, but also... I've been researching this topic for over two decades now, and, and certainly I'm not the first to be studying this. And so we've this, this evidence um, has been building for several decades, um, but we're also seeing um, concerning trends um, that, of course, are now um, far more visible and, mm-hmm. and perhaps brought to light um, by the pandemic. But certainly... Did not start with the pandemic um, uh, and and started much much earlier.
0: What are the drivers? We could do a whole hour on what the drivers are, but what do you see as behind this this high level of of feelings of loneliness you know
2: it's it 's probably really challenging and and difficult to pinpoint you know any one factor. Um, but we have tried to look at several trends to give us clues on um, how to make sense of this. And so I'll just give you a few examples. Sure. Um, the, um, there's been data that's been collected over the past two decades from the American Time Use Survey. And what this showed was that Americans are spending um, more time um, isolated or in isolation spending less time with family, both inside and outside the home, less time with um, friends, less time with others. Um, and that this um, has has been, you know, these trends have been building over the past um, couple decades. Um, there's also data that, that began even before that, um, data um, in, including that by Robert Putnam that shows trends um, dating back um closer to the 1960s. He's the bo- um, bowling trend- alone, he's the
0: bowling alone yes. guy, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um we see that, you know, Americans are are um less likely to be um, you know, belonging to various groups. Uh, you know, of course, he highlights the the bowling clubs, but of course, other kinds of clubs and groups in his book. Um, you know, the decline in um, participation in um, religion and other faith faith-based communities. Um, but we also see um declines in the size of of household um and and other kinds of indicators. and And so, um given you know a, a variety of these kinds of indicators of the indicating that we're we're less socially connected, Um, than we have been in in prior decades, um, it's perhaps not surprising that such a high percentage of Americans are also reporting that
0: they're feeling lonely. And I do want to pick up on that. But let me get to Eric Kleinenberg in on her conversation. And nice to have you with us on The Connection.
3: It's nice to be here. Sorry about the uh, technology.
0: Oh, that's okay. It's, it's live radio and and we just we roll with the punches. So, uh Eric, I know you heard a couple of of uh minutes of uh, Julianne talking about some of the drivers of this sense of loneliness and isolation. Let me then ask you about COVID. Of course, we're we're looking at uh, you know, 3 years post uh the start of the pandemic. How did that exacerbate feeling people's feelings of loneliness and isolation? So many people were told to go home, don't talk to people, don't go to public places.
3: Look, the loneliness is about a decline in the quality of our connection to people, not just the quantity. The quality of our connection really matters. And it was hard to feel like you had a high-quality connection with people while you were locked down in your home, not going to work. Uh, stressed out about the situation and feeling anxious about the state of the world. So there's no surprise that we saw spikes here and there with loneliness during the pandemic. And we also saw a lot of other really serious issues, a spike in anxiety and depression and stress. So we have been through a lot these past few years. I think we're just starting to reckon with the trauma.
0: Let me ask you both. And, and, and perhaps, Eric, I'll, I will start with you. Uh, and I was thinking about I, I hate to start a show talking about well, what, what are we talking? What is a definition of loneliness? But I think when you ask people, are you lonely? Do you feel lonely? You might come up with a variety of different answers to that question. Eric, how do you see what what loneliness is?
3: Well, it's obviously quite subjective, and you, you can only find out if someone's lonely if you ask them and they tell you that they are. But the, therein lies a bit of the problem with measuring this. Uh, you know people have really different ideas about what it means to be lonely. And moreover, some loneliness might be good for us, because you know, if you're sitting on your couch too much watching too much television, the loneliness is the signal that your body tells you. That you need to, to get into the world and make better connections with people. So, so some model loneliness might be very productive. The the problem is when we have you know, chronic loneliness, severe loneliness, and it spirals into this vicious cycle that leads to withdrawal and depression, which gets you more loneliness. So, uh, you know, I think of loneliness as uh, an experience we have when we don't have the quality of social connections and emotional connections that we need to feel good and different people have different points uh, where that becomes an issue and the one thing i'd say about the literature here is that so much of our discussion has to do with quantities you know Mm -hmm. how much time do people spend by themselves how many friends do you have and you know it's very interesting i wrote a book years ago about the fact that more people are living alone than ever before and i expected to find all kinds of loneliness in that population but what people told me time and again is uh, as lonely as they sometimes get when they're by themselves, there's nothing lonelier than being in a bad relationship. I think that's pretty profound.
0: It sure is. Julian, let me go back to you. And, and even from my own perspective, I was trying to define, so what is loneliness? And I, for me, it feels like this uh, a feeling of being invisible and that I, you would have no one to talk to if you felt like you wanted to share something, either good news or bad news. How do you see loneliness?
2: Yeah, it's, you know, I, I think Eric um, was, you know, very clear in, in how this can really be a very subjective experience and how um, oftentimes uh, it, it's defined as um, the discrepancy between one's desired level of connection and one's actual level of connection. And so because of that, it, it is such a subjective experience. Um and it's interesting because, of course, being alone can increase our risk of feeling alone. Right. It doesn't always happen that way, um, and and certainly you can be alone and not feel lonely, and and um, uh, you can uh, not be alone, uh, or sorry, you can be alone and and not feel lonely, and you can be around others and still feel lonely, um, and so uh, you know we do have to. Um, Really uh, be careful in distinguishing between them, but, um, but also recognizing that both have been linked to risk um, mm-hmm. for, for our health and, and well being. And, and so um, we really need to um, take kind of a, a, a holistic approach. And in fact, what I, I often find is even though we have such a specific definition in, in the scientific literature of this is that we often hear people using the term loneliness to refer to a whole host of ways that we could be socially disconnected from um, that actual subjective feeling to being objectively isolated to having poor quality relationships. And, and as um, Eric just touched on, um, poor quality relationships uh, can carry risks also.
0: Well, and Eric, picking up on that and something you have said, which is it's it, that the quality of our relationships is so pivotal to us feeling connected and to not feeling lonely.
3: I think that's right, and I think that's probably some of the reason why we see a spike in the loneliness measures on a lot of surveys these days. I think many of us spend a lot of our time on screens and in Social media land, where our interaction with other people is strange and often unsatisfying, and I think you know, there can be a lot of good things about the connections we make in the digital world, uh, but but they often feel a little bit saccharine. They, they they're, they're they're empty calories, and they, they they leave us wanting something more.
0: Well, and I do want to pick up on that, and I'm also looking at the clock here. But Eric, going back, I mean, it seems. There are both positives and negatives that come with social media. I'm thinking about my own, my own life. Uh, If there's a, a medical crisis in my family, I am hooked in in a way that I have not, would not be hooked in without social media
3: look, you know, I'm, I'm not a Luddite. You'll, you'll find me on Twitter and, <laughs> Fair and on Instagram. I'm, right. I'm, not, I'm, I'm not like my teenagers who live on the thing. Yeah, uh, but, but, you know, I'm, I, I, I try to use it in a healthy way because there are so many great things about it. And look, you know, if you're a, a gay kid in a small town in a conservative community, uh, social media is going to be a lifeline for you. And if you have any kind of illness, but especially, a you know, kind of rare, a rare one, and you're trying to learn about it, Uh, and find a community, you know, thank goodness for social media. And, uh, you know, I wrote a book years ago with a comedian about online dating. And that's a great place for people to meet each other these days. There's all kinds of things that, you know, those kind of social media and digital culture do for us. And I think we'd be in in and, and, and bad shape without it. just let's go back to COVID for a second I mean, well you know what uh, let
0: uh, hold on yeah. to that thought only because we're up on a very short break here and we are talking about loneliness today today on the connection uh the surgeon general says we are dealing with a crisis of loneliness in america that's eric kleinenberg also with us julianne holt Lundstad, and we have much more to talk about after this very short break including uh, COVID and social media and much, much more. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty moss talking with psychologist Julianne holt Lundstead. She's lead scientific editor of the Surgeon General's new advisory on loneliness, also with a sociologist, Eric Kleinenberg, author of a number of books, including one called Going Solo. Eric, let me just pick up on something you were saying right before the break when I had to interrupt you about, um, about social media and, and COVID, if you could finish your thoughts.
3: Well, just, uh, you know, since I'm often a critic of the way we use social media, I want to acknowledge that if it weren't for social media during the lockdowns of the pandemic, we would have been a lot more isolated and probably a lot more lonely. I mean, it, it was really wonderful to be able to connect with people on uh, all variety of, of apps. And, you know, interestingly, I, I wrote a paper with a graduate student at NYU named Jenny Lee, where we interviewed a lot of people living alone during the pandemic, and we were surprised to learn how many people said that they actually got more connected hmm. to friends and family uh you know they were they were connected at a distance. it was virtual, but they didn't feel abandoned or lonely in the conventional sense so much as physically lonely uh from the kind of lack of intimacy and close connection to people so you know that that's to say I think most of the time or much of the time when we're on social media we're looking for a kind of connection that at the end of the day we don't quite get and i really do think that that might be one of the reasons why we see a little uh, some uptick in the, the kind of loneliness measures out there um but uh they they can they can clearly do good things for us too
0: indeed well and well, yeah julian to, yeah um, go, go to you i want to get your response yeah, as well I mean, about social because- media
2: there's, and and I think he, he's touching on this, bo- though, but that there's such mixed evidence on this issue. And um, we found in some of our data, um, really, um, evidence in some cases where it helped, evidence in some cases where it didn't help, and evidence in some cases where it actually did harm. Hmm. Um, and so, for instance, um, uh, among Uh, one large national study, they found that older adults who were um, given um, various tools to connect um, digitally to others remotely um, through a variety of means um, actually were no better off than the ones that didn't get those or didn't use them. Um, And in our survey of 110 countries, um, we found that in... um, that those who reported um, basically a- any level of satisfaction other than uh, or dissatisfaction with their use of of um, uh, the uh, remote and digital tools uh, actually reported greater severity of lo- loneliness, oh, <laughs> um, and so it it you know it might really depend on how we use these tools and uh, and and so it's really. Unfortunately, we, we don't have simple answers that it's you know all good or all bad.
0: indeed. And Julian, let, let me pick up on something. Um, when, we, when we do connect online, do we get that kind of uh, little hint hit of oxytocin that you get when you're with someone in person and you feel a connection or even a love for them? Does that happen online? Well,
2: So the one thing about oxytocin is that it's often linked to physical touch. So whether that's, um, handholding, um, you know, sitting, snuggling, um, close to one, someone, um, or actual, you know, more physically intimate, um, uh, uh, that these, um, uh, neuropeptides, um, uh, be, are are active and and um, they're highly linked to social bonding, mm-hmm. and um, I mean even that is really complex. You know we don't have time to go into all all of the details on that, but the one thing that um, we don't have a good uh, substitute for through many of these these digital tools is actual physical touch. And I think one thing we recognized during the pandemic as amazing as it was to connect to our friends and family who we couldn't see and those maybe on the other side of the world and being able to touch base with them that we also really desperately just wanted to hug our loved ones to to reach out and hold sure. someone's hand and and that in many cases those those tools were just a poor substitute for that
0: let me pick up on on something. Then I do want to play another clip from uh, the the Surgeon General, and I'll go back to you, Eric. And I'm thinking of a lot of workplaces, is this one included, are trying to figure out how to bring people back and how much people work at home and how much they work in person um, by having a kind of hybrid workplace. Are we missing out on something about connection, and even maybe exacerbating human loneliness?
3: Well, I I really think that uh, our lives are diminished when we don't have relationships at work. Uh, uh, That said, uh, for a lot of people, going to work is a real hardship. I mean, I think what makes people reluctant to go to the office is partly that so many people commute such a long way that it eats up so much of their day. Uh, And I guess there's possibilities that people are spending more time you know, building nice relationships at home or with people in their neighborhood. You know, in New York City, where I live, the central business areas uh, in Manhattan are really diminished, but the outer boroughs where more people live are flourishing in many respects. So there could be some good things, but I, there's a lot of research we have that shows that relationships in the workplace can be very productive. They connect us to people who are different from us, you know, ideologically, ethnically, religiously, uh, if not in terms of social class. Uh, they're often a, a way that we get a break from uh, uh, relationships in our family and in our neighborhood, and, and can expand our horizons. And clearly, for younger people, relationships at work are really important for things like career development and skill development, and uh, you know, building ties to people who might matter for their for their professional life. And so, uh, I think again, this is something we're, we're reckoning with. Uh, some cities. The, the crisis in the um, uh, work environment is is greater than others. Uh, but this might be a fundamental shift that we're going to be living with for quite some time.
0: Let me play another clip from uh, Surgeon General Vivek Murthy. And this is on a recent episode of his podcast uh, called House Calls. And he's describing the ways his ha- his wife actually helped him with a bout of loneliness.
1: There was a time when I was struggling uh, with real loneliness, actually, after my first stint as a Surgeon General, and it was my wife, Alice, who really recognized what was, what was going on. And I'll, in fact, tell you how she helped me, because I think that that's a useful uh, model for others. You know, one of the things she encouraged me to do uh, is, number one, just to talk about it, to talk about what I was going through and to think about um, what I needed. And just being able to talk to her about that sense of disconnection I was feeling uh, was important because the truth is, I I felt a little bit of shame around it, uh, and some of that shame was specific to my situation because I had neglected a lot of my relationships and friendships in the prior few years uh, when I was in government, and I felt some hesitation to reach out to folks now. But being able to talk through that with her uh, was really important. The second thing she did, which was great, is. She really encouraged me to spend time with my friends and to reach out to them again. And that was great because sometimes in a relationship, you you can feel selfish to be taking more time out like that. But she gave me the permission uh, to actually go and spend more time with my friends, even though there's a lot going on in the house, because she knew that that was going to be an important part of how I rebuilt uh, my sense of connection. And that was really invaluable.
0: And that obviously was really invaluable and wonderful to have a a partner with such good advice. Julian. one of the things that really struck me with what the um, Surgeon General was saying was the kind of shame he felt for feeling lonely. And I, I wonder if you could help us understand that. Yeah, I think that there's a, a tendency
2: to uh, put a lot of um, maybe internal pressure on ourselves and that when we are lacking um, connection that that we feel as though we somehow have failed Um, and so it, it there is a lot of that 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 shame that can go along with it and I think also part of that is because this is viewed so much as a personal issue and I think one thing that was somewhat of a silver lining with the pandemic is that because there was an external force that people could look to as um, perhaps uh, you know it 's not their fault that they feel lonely they they could say you know it 's because i'm i 'm quarantining um and and having to limit my contact um that people felt more open about talking about it um, and in you know whether it's the the you know pandemic or not related to the pandemic we know that external factors can also impact uh, the various ways in which we can connect and so perhaps by recognizing that this is more than just a personal issue this is a community issue this is a societal issue that we can be more open, um, and and reduce some of that stigma
0: a- around this issue. Yeah, and Eric, you want to weigh in on that? I'm getting past the shame and stigma.
3: Oh, I think that's you know, Julian's completely right about that, um, and, and I think we we have reached a moment where, you know, not necessarily because of loneliness itself, but because of the the various stresses that we've faced uh, in the last several years. You know, we're having more open conversations about uh, just what a tough time it is. Uh, clearly, all of us who have children, uh, adolescents, are, are seeing uh, the struggles that people are having in schools right now. Uh, but it's it's quite widespread, and it, it could only be good for us to be more open and uh, acknowledging the, this uh, source of trouble and searching for collective ways to do something about it, which is, you know, for me, the, the biggest issue.
0: Sure. And that is a sociologist, Eric Kleinenberg, who joined us along with psychologist Julianne holt Lundsted, our guest today on The Connection, talking about this this crisis of uh, social isolation and loneliness in America, something that the Surgeon General uh, sounded the alarm about just uh, a couple of weeks ago. Eric, if I, if I can pick up on something else. And and just sort of broadly speaking, we are a country that seems to prize the individual, you know, to pull Mm -hmm. yourselves up by your bootstraps. And whatever success you had, you did it because of all the hard work that you did. And that really flies in the face of both human (laughs) nature and also our evolution. But has that created, do you think, a unique crisis of loneliness? Because we think we're on our own and we got to do it all ourselves.
3: You know, I, I, I thought that years ago you know, when I started working on this uh, Going Solo book, I was really persuaded that this cult of individualism in the United States, the hyper-individualistic nature of our society would make us more prone to do things like live by ourselves uh, and, and maybe even to experience loneliness. I have to tell you, I was really surprised to learn that you know when it comes to loneliness, uh, and especially when it comes to, I should say, to be more specific, when it comes to living alone, America actually ranks far behind almost all of the European countries. Uh, we are not the place that where people are most likely to live on their own. And when it comes to loneliness, I think it's a little bit more mixed. Um, I, uh, think there's a, some particular crises, uh, we face in the U.S., uh, related to the stigma. And I think there are parts of the population where it's especially difficult to acknowledge loneliness and, and to get help. And I guess I'd say one other thing, which is that you know, we, we also live in a health system uh, that really doesn't provide enough care for everyone. And so the fact that so few people in the United States feel like they can get good access to uh, care for, for uh, mental health issues and for feelings of loneliness uh, makes it especially difficult. Uh, but I would say the, the cultural idea that we're worse off in the United States, uh, that's something that I wound up feeling disabused of.
0: Well, that's interesting. And I wonder, Julian, whether you've looked around the world, I actually Googled Finland because apparently Finland is the happiest country in the world <laughs> just to find out how how are people dealing with loneliness there. And sure, you know, they're dealing with loneliness. And in certain ways, it is an existential question about just here we are on Earth. We have a short time, and you know, we live imperfectly. <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, so I've you know spent the last uh, few years working with various global organizations. I, I work with the Global Initiative on Loneliness and Connection, and we're partnered with the um, World Health Organization to really take a global perspective on this. Um, I also was one of the academic advisors on. Uh, a Gallup survey on the global state of, of social connection. And um, so uh, one of the things that uh, we found in the, the Gallup survey is that, um, that at least when it comes to loneliness, um, that it doesn't seem to fall along the lines of what we might uh, conveniently categorize into say individualistic versus um, collectivistic types of cultures. Um, and so uh, there, there may be something um, more than just uh, that, that individual kind of um, uh, perspective, but uh, that certainly um, we are seeing trends across the globe. Um, they vary to some extent from country to country. Um, But also um, we have to recognize that, for instance, many um, European nations, you mentioned Finland, Mm -hmm. um, many of them have um, uh, greater social safety nets um, and the kinds of of programs and services in place that um, can help people in their countries that um, that many other countries do not have, um, and so when when we find ourselves um, in in need, um, if we don't have an existing uh, social circle, um, whether that's our family and friends, those informal kinds of supports, we need to then um, you know either rely on some kind of social safety net or we need to have the financial resources to meet those needs. And so these are growing problems that we're, we're seeing um, in not only our nation, but around the world, um, as this is also tied to economic
0: factors. Indeed, you put a lot there. Let me just pick up on one piece, Eric, and I go back to you. I mean, and, and I hear you both saying that 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 loneliness is so much dependent on the quality of our relationships with other people, which does raise a question about, you know, do we know how to be known with others? Do we know how to share with others? Do we know how to listen? Do we know how to be empathetic?
3: Well, see, now I think you're getting at the deep questions that make this such a complicated issue and, and makes it uh, difficult to solve, you know, with a pill You know, or a policy pill, because the truth is that, you know, our our species has struggled with loneliness for a very long time. And clearly, uh, our collective anxiety about loneliness really took off when we moved out of our traditional villages and moved into big cities and entered the modern world. And we have been struggling with these kinds of problems for a very long time. And I guess that's why I'm a little reluctant to jump into the language of the epidemic of loneliness. It's why I don't often say, you know, we're lonelier than we've ever been before because I think the the measures are a little bit all over the place and they're inconsistent when we go from, you know, year to year or country to country, but we don't even need that to acknowledge the fact that uh, feeling disconnected, feeling lonely, is a, is a deep and longstanding problem. And the real question, I think Julian just hit it for us, is how are we going to address it collectively? Are we gonna, are we gonna do it with, by providing a safety net? Do, are there certain kinds of care we can provide? Or can we also think about building places, you know, build, building physical places, social infrastructure that helps us uh, gather with each other and find the more qu- high-quality connections we need?
0: Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take another short break and and pick up on that, get back to our conversation. Here on The Connection, we are talking about loneliness in America, perhaps even around the world. And again, that's Eric Kleinenberg, also with us, Julianne holt Lundstad. Much more after this very short break. Do stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Connection here on WHYY in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Wayne. Let me just quickly reintroduce our two guests. Uh, Julianne Holt Lundstad is lead, uh, excuse me, lead scientific advisor for the Surgeon General's new advisory. A, uh, an advisory titled Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. She's scientific chair of the U.S. Foundation for Social Connection, also professor of psychology at Brigham Young University. Eric Kleinenberg is professor of sociology at New York University, author of a number of books, including Palaces for the People and Going Solo. Well, Julian, let me pick up on what Eric was talking about uh, right before the break, which is, um, how do we you know create this i guess culture of connection or address some of the more social or even sociological um uh problems that that make it hard to to connect with each other? What are your thoughts about that
2: well so um i mean one thing i'll I'll point to is and and I know and i am you can probably tell i'm i'm almost chuckling um as i say it uh, <laughs> And that is that um, I, I would encourage people to look to the um, the Surgeon General's Advisory. Um, not only talks about the evidence around this issue, but provides a um, first ever um, framework for a national strategy that that includes six key pillars. Um, and, and so, um, I, I laugh because I, I know it's long, it's 80 pages, <laughs> so, so many people it, it's, may it's... not, not read the whole thing, but, um, certainly, um, we can get some clues from sure. these, these pillars. Um, and so, I mean, one of the things that, that was touched on was this, um, you know, this idea of, um, a, a social infrastructure, um, that I know, um, Eric, talks about um, in in his own work um, but it's this idea of the kinds of places and um, spaces uh, that and, and institutions where people gather um, and we also talk about um, the the role of of policy as well and you know it's interesting because we think of social connection and loneliness as such personal issues. And um, you know, that it's it's a private issue um that certainly the you know, the government has no business in our personal lives. Um, but one of the things that the pandemic taught us was that social contact is part of, basically, Every aspect of our lives right. um, you know it, it altered the way we, um, we we go to work, you know the way we work, the way we, our, our education, our entertainment, the way we shop, basically every single aspect of our lives um, had to be altered when we had to limit social contact. but what that also communicated is that there's social relevance to literally every sector of society. And what that suggests is that each of these sectors of society can potentially play a role. And it may not be the sorts of policies that people think of. Like, you know, I, I often hear people say, uh, you know, you can't put good relationships in the drinking water. And, you know, what are you going to do, legislate hugs? Um, <laughs> but what we can do is think about the kinds of policies that limit our ability to connect with other people, whether that's um, workplace policies that limit our time to spend with others outside of the workplace um, or the kinds of um, infrastructure and how our communities are built. Um, All of these things can influence the degree to which we are able to interact with others and to connect with others. And so it it, um, reveals tremendous opportunity for us to really be, um, uh careful and and thoughtful about um, about the kinds of practices and policies and and how we design our society
0: and, and those are all important and I think things that we should all think about and I wonder to you Eric, if I can ask you some really basic <laughs> little questions here, one having to do with stoops and porches uh you know when when and in in philadelphia it 's a city of row homes in many different ways and People, I think they still sit on their stoops. I hope they do. Porch is doing the same thing. Also, talking to strangers. I mean, the idea of, of being able to connect with people in these small, little, momentary ways. How important do you think that is?
3: Well, it can be tremendously important in a, in a neighborhood and you know, in, in, in the uh, Palaces for the People book, which is about social infrastructure, to write about Philadelphia and uh, the fact that in a lot of neighborhoods where there was depopulation, you know, when jobs started to disappear from Philadelphia and neighborhoods got hollowed out, uh, you started to see, uh, more abandoned buildings, more empty lots. There are many places in Philadelphia where that, you know, is, remains a problem to this day. Sure. And when you have that in your neighborhood, it actually discourages people from spending time outdoors and socializing with each other. And, you know, as, as the Philadelphians know, one uh, recent experiment in the city over the last decade has been, um, you know, using public money to uh, turn those little, uh, spa- you know, spaces with an empty lots into pocket parks, uh, to board up abandoned buildings, and to try to revive the street life of a place, you know, really to build up the social infrastructure. And the returns on local life are tremendous. I mean, they, they help people uh, talk to one another, they also help people feel less stressed when they're in the area and just encourage people generally to be outdoors. So that's, you know, one of many simple kinds of social infrastructure fixes that we could be doing locally and also nationally. And I just want to note that you know we've talked a lot in the last several years about investing billions and maybe even trillions of dollars on infrastructure for this country. We you know we know that our roads are falling apart. We know that our airports and our train systems don't work well, that the power goes out, but we have also neglected to invest in our social infrastructure, and it's you know, my sincere hope that in this conversation about how we get better connected, we don't just dump the burden of responsibility on the backs of individuals who already feel burdened. Uh, we we also need to recognize that if if we want to help people connect with each other, one thing we can do is invest in things like uh, better updated libraries and, and nicer parks that are accessible and and better playgrounds with updated equipment and uh, no no glass and debris on the on the ground uh, we, we just haven 't done that in this country in a way that we once did, and I think you know we, we, we look for other reasons that uh, we all feel disconnected, but, but one of them is that we just stop contributing to ourselves.
0: Hmm. That's really fascinating. And I wonder, um, Julianne, if you want to add to that.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the things that that brings up is also that there are sadly um, uh, disparities. And one of the things that we um, consistently find is that um, people who report greater financial concerns also report greater severity of loneliness. And one of the things that we also see is that not all neighborhoods um, or communities have equal kinds of parks. And, you know, some some communities um, have more green space, more parks, more libraries, um, uh, more churches. Uh, I mean, you name it. Um, uh, and other neighborhoods are more impoverished and don't have those kinds of, of places to gather. But also... Um, their their sidewalks may not be as well maintained and so those with disabilities are are less able to get out and so we have a lot of disparities in in our communities and so we need to also think about how how we can reckon with this um in recognizing the kinds of factors that contribute to isolation and loneliness and and being less uh connected and I want to just um bring back one one issue and uh, um, around living alone and um, we need to also be thinking about getting more creative about our housing um because of course that's tied to finances as well as as housing becomes less and less um, affordable. but um we do know need to note that we have data from over a hundred countries that that shows that um people who live alone uh report greater severity of loneliness so and that's true whether that is by choice or not by choice um we found that uh people who who live alone by choice um were still 60% um more likely to report greater severity of loneliness um than those who live with others um but those who who are living alone not by choice it was seven times higher um and so there is some risk associated with that, and we need to think more broadly about how we can help people connect.
0: Well, in fact, let me play another clip from uh, the Surgeon General's podcast where he talked directly about this. In fact, he talked about some of the risks for people living alone and what he did to make sure that he stayed connected while he was living by himself.
1: We do have to keep in mind that when we live alone, that there are certain things that we have to be more proactive about doing to ensure that we are building connection in our lives. Because what the studies do show is that isolation, which can also result from uh, living alone and not having interaction with others, is associated uh, with worse outcomes in terms of mental health and physical health. So in order to address that risk, one of the things I did when I was living alone is I made a particular point to spend time uh, with my friends in person to call Family and friends, you know, every day to talk to them on the phone because I knew, knowing my own personality, uh, that if I didn't do that, if I didn't make it a point uh, to proactively build in that interaction time, that I could go days sometimes uh, without seeing or talking to another person.
0: And Eric, you wrote a book called Going Solo.
1: I did, and
3: you know, again, I think this is one of these things where you know you you can cut it up and look at different populations. And for some people, living alone works really well, and for other people, it doesn't work really well. And um, you know, I I I, I hate to uh, lump it all together as one kind of collective experience because it, it is actually uh, there is a lot of variation there. But what I think we can acknowledge, and, and I think we need to, what we need to deal with urgently, is that. We do have a real housing problem in this country because there are so many one-person households. There are a number of people, record numbers of people who are aging alone, and we haven't really figured out how to make sure that people who age alone uh, are connected to their neighbors, are connected to their families. And here's an area where the United States really is a laggard compared to other countries that are experimenting with new kinds of housing that, that you know keep people connected. Uh, in situations where they can be supported and supportive of one another. And I think every American family that has uh, an older person who's who's aging and aging alone, and there are a lot of us struggle with this issue, uh, many people know that there is a very expensive world of assisted living complexes where quite affluent older people can be surrounded by all kinds of services and programs and it can be a pretty good experience um, for, for what could be, what can, despite what can be a difficult situation. Uh, but those assisted living complexes are just about inaccessible to everyone uh, who doesn't have a lot of money. And so how can we start to think about new forms of housing that can tie us together across generations or that can keep people who are old and alone uh, connected to each other and, and how do we deal with housing more generally that doesn't put so much pressure on each individual nuclear family to provide for all of its own needs? We, we have had periods in this country where we thought much more seriously about what it is to build a community or a neighborhood, uh, how families can help each other out. And, you know, in the last several decades, we have embraced, uh, you know, what some people call neoliberal, more, more individual-based solutions, more market-based solutions to things. And I think we are reeling uh, from the damage of all of that. And this is a a moment where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot to be worried about, but it's also a moment in our history where we can be very creative and start to think about new models for how we rebuild and what we do coming out of this pandemic crisis. So although I think the, the threats are really serious, it's, I think it's wonderful that we're here having this conversation, that we have a Surgeon General who's taking the issues seriously, uh, because we could really do something different uh, in the in the years to come.
0: And. What an exciting thought, especially if, if we uh, end up doing that. Julian, let me ask you actually a personal question. And I, I saw an article in the American Psychological Association a number of years ago. And you talked about the fact that at that time, uh, your husband was very ill with cancer. Happily, he's he's not, as I understand it. Um, but you had to reach out for help. And it was hard for you. And I don't think you're alone in that. But I wonder if you could just talk a little personally about, about what that was like for you yeah um, you
2: know it's interesting because here I am a researcher who um, has been studying the importance of of social support for your health and I'm facing this crisis um, with my husband who um, was stage four um, in critical condition at the time my kids were four and eight oh, gosh. <laughs> and I um, and I I desperately needed help. And yet I felt this difficulty in, and it wasn't that I didn't have people that I, I, in my life, I have, you know, a a large family. um, They're, you know, friends, but it, I didn't want to be a burden to others. And it's really difficult to ask for help. And I, I remember one of my dear friends saying to me, you know we all feel helpless we want to help let us do this for you <laughs> and you know it was such a, a good reminder of you know we often have these barriers to asking for help because we don't want to be a burden um and and but people really sincerely do want to help <laughs> and so you know um, when when you have people around you, um, you know, accept that help <laughs> um, because it can be um, so incredibly beneficial. Um, but I also recognize how many people may not actually have others to rely on um, who are offering um, and that that, you know, can be really difficult to then ask for help from from strangers or um, from you know some kind of institutional help because you feel like you, you can't solve your problems on your own. We live in a culture that values self-reliance and independence, um, um, but uh, these are, are, are barriers to us being interdependent and that we can rely on each other and that uh these kinds of experiences you know and and i found from my own experience actually brought me so much closer to many of those relationships
0: in my life well we have to leave it there on i know julian holt lunstead thank you so much for joining us today on the connection thank you and eric kleinenberg thank you for joining us as well
3: thanks it's been a pleasure
0: a pleasure for us as well our engineer today al banks Debbie Builder is the senior producer. Paige Murray Besser, the producer of The Connection. I'm Marty Moskowin. Thank you so much for joining us.